Birds may choose to walk if they wish. Is a female geyser called a girlzer? Firewood is more wood than fire. You can't swing on a vine in silence. Drink neither filthy water nor watery filth. Don't put rocks in a garland. We'd all be doomed without taxidermy. Even venomous snakes have a favorite ice cream. Mulch, 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 mulch. So many stars. Welcome now to Out of All Doors. Hello, and welcome to the 13th episode of Out of All Doors. I'm your host, Adam Drent, and this episode marks the one-year anniversary of the podcast incarnation of Out of All Doors. That makes this episode inherently special whether we make any extra effort to make it special or not, so please listen to it through a lens of specialness to the degree that it's possible to listen through a lens. For those of you who have been listening since this time last year, you already know that Out of All Doors used to be a blog where outdoor enthusiasts the world over would congregate to discuss their favorite place in the world, the outdoors. But then my awful one-eyed indoors-bound former babysitter named Maya correctly guessed the password to the blog and changed it to a blog dedicated to being in of all doors. So now we're a podcast, and I'm fine with that. I love that. Although my great dream is to one day reclaim our ancestral home at outofalldoors.wordpress.com. Do not visit that address right now. So that the blog can be restored to its former glory, and the blog and the podcast can coexist in perfect harmony, supporting one another, sharpening each other like iron sharpens iron, as the Bible says, albeit not about blogs and podcasts, which actually may have been forbidden under Old Testament law if they had existed. Who knows? But anyway, until the day comes where we can wrest the blog away from Maya's pale hands or she comes to her senses and willingly gives it back to us, all we can do is pray, hope, and continue to commit ourselves fully to the Out of All Doors podcast as I and most of the contributors do. I usually use these introductions as an opportunity to share my outdoor knowledge in the form of a list of tips relating to a specific outdoors-related theme, but this time I'm going to give you all an update on the podcast after a year of episodes, a sort of state of of out-of-all-doors address. This show was never supposed to be about conflict. It was supposed to be about people coming together over their shared love of the outdoors, putting aside their differences and embracing an out-of-all-doorsy unity. That's what the blog was about, and that's what I wanted the podcast to be about. Of course, the blog had its share of problems, too, and we don't need to rehash those here, but I really felt that the podcast would be an uplifting experience. That's what I wanted. Listen, I specifically told Cousin Ben not to write any more poems about floods before last month's episode. At no point did I specify that the poems shouldn't be about floods of water, so the fact that he wrote about floods of other stuff frankly wasn't good enough for me. And yes, the second one was more about drowning than floods, but that's still tangentially connected to floods. That's still indicative of the fact that he didn't take my request to heart. I have to think about what's good for the podcast, and month after month of poems about floods destroying stuff isn't good for the podcast. And it's not good for Cousin Ben as a poet either. If he wants to grow, he needs to expand his subject matter. And of course, he pointed out that the battery is about bats every month, but bats are a much richer subject than floods, and that's an established objective fact. Bats could undoubtedly sustain an entire podcast on their own, whereas that first episode where Cousin Ben read three flood poems was probably already one or two flood poems too many. But anyway, I've spoken to him again, and he's not happy about it, but there will be no more flood poems on Out of All Doors from this day forward. So if you've been considering unsubscribing because you didn't want to have to sit through any more flood poems, please reconsider.
I also want to acknowledge here that Casey and Jason and the multiverse, or whatever it's called, has nothing to do with the outdoors. I'm aware of that. I still think that Casey should apologize to me and the other contributors for the stuff he read on the show that he claimed was from my diary, but he assures me that this multiverse stuff is all going to end up making some kind of sense in the end, and at this point we've devoted so much time to it that I kind of feel like we have to keep including the segment. For those of you who are just now tuning in, I can't even begin to summarize it, but I just want to reiterate that the voice you hear on the segment who sounds like me is not me. It's Casey doing an impression of a character who sounds exactly like me, I think, although I don't even know if that's true anymore. Just bear with it. And I have no further updates on the ghostly presence who interfered with the Campfire of Chill segments a few episodes ago. I considered hiring a medium to come to my house and stand in my sound booth and ask the ghostly presence to please not insert itself into the podcast without permission, especially if it can't say anything nice, but I didn't end up doing that because the thought of having to make small talk with the medium all the way from my front door up the stairs to my bedroom and into the sound booth filled me with dread. And then I thought I'd probably have to make different small talk with the same medium all the way back down to the front door when it was over. So, as far as I know, the ghostly presence is still ghostly and still present. Although, if it's listening now as I record this, please don't insert yourself into the podcast without permission. Please. I also received an update about Featherwood Frames while I was at Yance's wedding a few days ago. And that update is that Featherwood Frames no longer exists. I'm hesitant to blame you listeners for not buying enough glasses frames, but I'm going to blame you despite my hesitance because I really do believe that it's your fault. But I'm also going to let the world know that we now have an opening for another official sponsor for Out of All Doors, so if you or anyone you know would like to be our official sponsor, send me an email at outofalldoors at gmail.com and we'll talk business. If you or the potential sponsor you know don't think I'm capable of talking business, just email me and find out. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. And just in case there's any confusion, no, Gentleman's Mills is not our official sponsor. We allow them to advertise in the show but we decided that it's best to avoid any sort of official association with them. Not because we don't love them and appreciate what they do and their interest in advertising our show, but just, you know. And if anyone knows if Harrison Bump is okay, would you mind letting us know? I just want to make sure nothing bad has happened to him. Well, nothing too bad. You know, nothing out of the, like, ordinary level of bad for him, you know, like, relative to how his life usually seems like it's going. So anyway, that's where we stand. We've had some problems, some of which we're still dealing with, but we're looking ahead. We're looking to the time when we're beyond those problems and the podcast has reached its full, uplifting potential. And we're also looking to a time when we get the blog back. It's not even about actually writing the blog. It's just the principle of the thing. It's galling to me. It really is. I hate to go back to this during what was supposed to be the conclusion to the intro, but if anyone can get the password from Maya so that we can take the blog back from her, you can name your reward. And if it's in my power to grant it, I will. That's my solemn vow to you. I swear it on the name of Out of All Doors. Let's begin, shall we? Hello, downloaders, and you few true poetry lovers out there. Present management excluded, of course. It's Cousin Ben. Surprisingly, and against all odds, back again to bring you some poetry. Slave to the crown, peasant in service, chained court jester, call me what you will, I just consider myself a humble poet. Well, folks, somehow, art has triumphed against all odds, and poetry has crawled from the rubble wrought by the tyrannical airstrike. 
covered in ashes, and the red brick dust of all that is pure and inspired to raise the flag of nature's muse and spit at the contrails of the king's stealth bombers as their exhaust gases merge into the vanishing point of the horizon. Blood red and dripping the genetic breadcrumb trail of their crimes across the desert floor. And I'm back to bring you some more inspired nature poetry. And I'm making air quotes when I say inspired, in case you couldn't hear that. It seems that King Adam has spoken, and that all art in his land must be as he says it is. All art in the kingdom must be in his image, dry, stale, traditional, non-inspired. I hear what you're saying, and yes, he is my biological cousin. But I can assure you, there is no nepotism lost on me. The king has spoken and he has decreed that this is his kingdom. Spies of the king, never you fear. There will be no graffiti on the king's ivory tower. Given my patrons are so few and far between, I will bow and obey. So, let's make lemonade from this decree, shall we? Off with the inspiration's head, and on with the poetry. Clouds. While on my bike and out for a ride, I encountered the beauty of the outside. The clouds so big and like chewy bubblegum, and a silly clown face who wanted to have fun. Oh, you silly nature lady, what makes me smile so big? What will you show me next? A fluffy cloud pig? Hello, listeners. Previously, I've shared my favorite selections from the works of Felton Hausch, famous Western writer and cultural icon of the West. I received several comments from readers since then, wanting to know more about the man behind the pen, and so I thought I'd share in this episode of Out of All Doors some selections from Mr. Hausch's autobiography, my own very life in the wildest of all Wests. I think this selection will provide some crucial insight into the character of Mr. Hausch, and sharp readers will even catch some parallels between fiction in fact. <clears throat> Lumbered the idiot boy, Cardus, into the petroleum refueling haberdashery, carrying with him the distinctive stench of abject failurehood, a stench unwashable by common soap foam. I exited the self-same recreational vehicle Cardus emerged from, albeit with a hesitance to suggest we were merest acquaintances. I nothing more nor less than a hitching hiker wind-walloped and hope-crazed enough to accept a ride from so low a stinker as he. As I affected nonchalance, whistling a jaunty hymn and setting my key piece a twirl, Cardus turned to the store's entryway, wondering too loudly if I were to want sustenance as well. What do you want to eat or whatever? he bellowed. Down I turned the offer, pretending interest in a nearby cactus. Cardus and I were traveling all the way and all the way out into the seas of tonal rock sand rising then and again in broad monoliths like the great fingers of some earth beast emergent. Beyond the billing board and through the electric wires I looked at the west, for here it was, virtuous in its regard, too bold for man but enchantress all the same. Bad sands at hand to withstand the highest plans that man planned. 
My thoughts became interrupted by cellular phone, an alarm from Cardus the Burthen, requesting I pilfered the buttocks paper from the ladies' privy, that the men's own privy had not. Was this man or child, I wondered to myself, and then again, aloud. Into the store I went, in its cold chasms of buttery treats proffering themselves at discounts unspeakable. I opted for a peanut and butter wafer, held tight in a polystyrene chrysalis, a treat indeed. Without man, deity, nor clerk to say me nay, I tore into the wrapper violently, flensing the wafer from its plastic flesh and gnawing greatly into its sweetened middle like a winged condor supping on fresh carrion. I ate the wafer entire, letting the plastic shell fall pitifully to the linoleumed floor. This, too, was the West, this casual disregard for society's stranglehold, father laws, sharp claw piercing and squeezing the freedom of man into orders obeyed with nothing aforethought. Ignoring the cashier's dumbfounded countenance, I walked out of the refueling station my own god-man, still chewing wafer, obeying only the will of the wind and the cries of the freest raptors singing overhead. Twin bells tinkled in applause as I strode out into the west, an outlaw in word, appetite, and deed. Anon I was outside, free and wild in the land where the free men stood standing, and I among them as well. I transmitted a textual message to Cardus to hurry up and desoil himself, for I was ready to surge ahead, ever onward, to the next of our reserved motor hotels, the proprietor of which was eagerly expecting us. Cardus came out into the sun soaked to his core, reeking all the more. Cardus, gross, I shouted his word. Dude, where were you? questioned he poorly. I shall not venture into a lady's room, for I am no lady, I rejoined. Could have fooled me, he dumbed. Neither man, beast, nor wind laughed at his meager jape, and I extended my middlemost finger into his face. He pawed it away with a hand so bad it might as well have been leprous. I squinted in the sun and took him in, wondering how it had come to this. See the man-child. He could neither read nor write, and in him brooded a taste for mindless computerized games. No history present in his visage. His origins would become remote as was his destiny, and not again in the world's turning would there be terrain so wild and barbarous to try whether the stuff of creation may be shaped to a man's will, or whether his heart was made of a different kind of clay. Cardus looked like a candle mostly melted, skin sallow and fattened by baby flesh stubborn to leave his big body. His hair remained untouched by soap, his mouth open to flies and closed to intelligent speech. This was no way for a younger brother to look. But yet he was mine, and so I had to traipse this big broken land with him. Already he'd nearly lost his life tumbling down three overlooks, and all we had to show for it were the photos he took of sky, dirt, and finger. Now before us strode two dirt-deviled hulks, bebloodened and sweat-stained from a day's dirty deeds seemingly done dirt cheap. They shed their helmets and shook thick manes of pure hair. Aside, their motorized pedal cycles like racing horses at rest. How you doing? Cardus asked them, smiling and nodding. The men made a noise incomprehensible. Hey, I breezed. Cool bikes. Sure, said one of the men. Then, excuse me, as he walked into the cool building. It is I who should be the one to ask for excusal, I began. 
that the man was already inside. Then stood Cardus outside, kicking at the dust, waiting perhaps for a chance to address the men at greater convenience when their purchases were complete. Dude, should I? Cardus noised suddenly. Should you what, be a moron? I quipped. Too late. Cardus made Waddle to the nearest motorized pedal cycle and threw a large leg over, somehow not toppling man nor machine. He enlivened the engine to a grumbling noisiness. What are you doing, you fool? I shouted, but could not be heard over the din. I went to him and rested the machine from his fat palms, pushing him onto the pavement and toppling a balloon warthog advertising fried pork skins. As we skirmished, the two bikers ran emergent from the haberdashery and rushed to their growling pedal cycle. Their fists found me first, basting my body with their arm. It's not me, it's him, I shrieked, and besought Cardus's bovine eye glance with a sharp look. He was my brother, after all. And for a moment, Cardus paused, his meat hand rising to his mouth. Then, shock in his manner, he spluttered. I saw him. He was trying to steal your bikes. I ran over here to stop him. That was the last I heard, before the blows came frequently and more frequently yet. Later, in the recreational vehicle, my wounds stanched by buttocks paper stolen from the ladies' privy, we drove in silence, save Cardus's noisy chewing and the tinny sound of his earpieces broadcasting whatever most recent disquiet he liked. As we drove, I watched through the windscreen as the desert surrounds encompassed me in their versicolor bravado, the sights seeing into me as I saw them, a vast forever unrolled and unimaginable, yet there, certainly, and unable to be tamed. When did we through it? The motor hotel hours and hours away, the proprietor undoubtedly disgusted by our unpunctuality. We are driving across an arid land at night, and we are thirsty. Mile after mile of empty desert rolls darkly past, and there is nowhere to stop except nowhere. Just as we are in the process of signing a contract that will legally resign us to a state of thirstiness for the remainder of our trip, an oasis appears alongside the road ahead of us. The building is two-story house-sized and black, lighted by four spotlights. We pull into its parking lot and exit our vehicle, looking up at the structure in front of us. It is shaped like a certain winged mammal, black and elegant, you know the one, and it has a door in its stomach, a door that we approach, a door that we open, a door that we walk through, a door that swings closed behind us as our eyes adjust to the level of light inside the room, which is, guess what, low. And you know who's waiting for us even if you don't know their names, even if you don't know if they have names. We have entered the battery. There was this guy who wanted to love bats more than he already did, but he didn't know how to accomplish such a thing. He didn't even know if it was possible, but he wanted to try. Maybe just wanting to love them more than he already did was enough? Maybe that in itself was an indication that there was no defined cap on his love for bats? No. 
He wanted to do something concrete. So he got a bat tattoo on his chest, right over his heart. It was detailed and expensive, but when he looked at it in the mirror, he could easily imagine someone who didn't love bats as much as he did with the exact same tattoo. So then he went and he got a brand shaped like a bat on his stomach and it hurt very much. But when it was over, he still wasn't satisfied. In part because the brand didn't look as much like the outline of a bat as he hoped. And also because people were more impressed with the fact that he got a big painful brand at all than the fact that it was of a bat. Especially since they couldn't really tell it was a bat. And also he couldn't wear a shirt because the fabric would stick to the branded flesh, which wasn't doing too well as far as healing and not oozing and such. And although the shirtlessness meant the bat tattoo, which was clearly a bat, was always visible, the brand tended to draw the eye and then, almost immediately after drawing the eye, repel that same eye entirely. So then the guy was like, well, this didn't really work out, but does the fact that I ruined my life in pursuit of a higher level of love for bats mean that I succeeded in loving bats more than I used to? He decided that the answer was yes, but in his heart, he wasn't sure, and he didn't know how to ever find out. He had assumed that upon achieving greater love for bats, he would feel it, that a deep calm would come over him, that he would break through the barrier that he had felt himself pressed against for the last few months, and that he would find himself in a room expansive and warm and welcoming, that he would then be able to stretch out and take a deep breath and admire the full depth and breadth of the extended dimensions of his love for bats. But now it seemed that not only had he not achieved a new level of love for bats, the love that he already had for bats may have been worse than he thought because he had allowed it to lead him and it had led him badly astray. And as the guy looked glumly down at his disaster of a naked torso, he noticed that the bat tattoo was beginning to move. It was peeling itself off of his chest. It was flying up his chimney, carrying a sizable chunk of his heart away with it. And the man felt nothing but the persistent pain of the brand on his stomach. And then he knew that the portion of his heart the bat had taken with it when it left was the portion of his heart that his love for bats could have expanded into if he had made better decisions. But he had not, and now he knew that if he were to break through the barrier, there would not be an expansive warm room on the other side for his love to grow into, but rather a cliff for his love for bats to pour over, tumbling down into darkness until it was gone. Imagine this, a bat doing things you wouldn't expect a bat to do, but not people things, that's too easy. A bat using a crayon to make a sign for a garage sale, too easy. That's just imagining something a person might do and then substituting a bat for that person. Try harder. Try this. Imagine a bat smoking a cigarette specifically designed for lions. Write a letter to your congressman. Write it about something other than bats, but casually mention bats in a positive context. See what happens. Little things can make a difference. Maybe you'll wake up a year from now and that congressman will be trying to pass a law that lets bats do whatever they want. Not that I know what that would be. I'm not a bat mind reader. In fact, I don't read any minds. And not because I don't want to, I do want to. I just can't. I'm incapable. Few people are capable. Some say no people can read minds and they're probably right. Not that I'd stake my life on it, but it seems tough to prove either way. So I guess I will stake my life on it after all. If bats make a child feel uneasy, that child may have one of my least favorite diseases. Take that child to a doctor immediately and tell the doctor I'm worried. Mention me by name, it might help. 
Has she ever cried over a bat? Either at a tragedy involving a bat or perhaps at the beauty of a bat in action? Has she ever cried because a bat seemed to prefer her over her rival? Has she shed tears upon learning a unique bat fact? Has she cried tears of joy upon learning there's a bat just chilling right around the corner? Is she listening to this right now and crying? Have you ever seen her cry because she watched a cartoon where an anthropomorphic bat couple who everyone thought was solid broke up? Has she cried like a bat? Has she mistaken a bird for a bat and cried when the bird did something stupid because she was disappointed that a bat would do something stupid and then cried with relief when she realized her mistake? Has she cried at the singing voice of a man who dedicated his song to bats? Has she cried because a precocious little girl said, I'm a bat, and seemed to mean it despite its apparent untruth? I hope you gave her a tissue. We step up to the counter. A man stands behind it, ready to receive our orders. We order drinks. The drinks arrive in glasses with ice. We drink them. Our thirsts are slaked. We want to know why the outside of the building is shaped like the outside of a bat, while the inside of the building is not shaped like the inside of a bat. The proprietor tells us that would be impractical. We ask why. He snaps his fingers and a bat with no fur and transparent skin flies out of the kitchen and lands on the counter in front of us. We can clearly see the bat's insides and we instantly understand why a building shaped like that would be a problem for people. All of our questions answered to our satisfaction. One of us says we should hit the road and the others nod their heads in what is either agreement or perhaps a different feeling that they have misrepresented with head nods. We leave the battery. And now it's time to hear from a contributor we haven't heard from for a while, Eugene in Portland, Maine, with his segment, Woodsman Wisdom. He's written in, Oh my, listeners, oh my. It's been a while, hasn't it? I gotta apologize for my absence these past few episodes. The thing is, well, the thing is that, frankly, I've been not feeling up lately. Since I last checked in, I've had what we call up here in Maine a major life change. Now... I don't want you to get worried about my relationship with the natural world. No change there, major nor minor. My love of the brown and green has not, and will not be, going anywhere. Instead, the situation is on the ground, as it were, the home front. Things here have gone through a bit of a sea change. You see, what happened was, well, what happened was that Heather, my frowny-eyed beauty, my mumbling cute sheep, My sleepy-kneed bashful bumpkin, well, Heather, you see, she just, well, let's put it this way. She packed a bag and walked out of all my doors. Can you believe that? She just up and waltzed straight from couch right into great unknown. Now, as you all are aware, in no small part to my frequent reminders, I'm an unabashed fan of the outdoors. I'm an outdoors guy, but to go outdoors and never come back? 
I do fully realize that Heather, save for the possibility of some morbid and horrifying mishap, didn't remain in the woods outside of our home and that she's probably found herself a, oh, I don't know, maybe a nice $136 hotel room on Panicky Avenue right off of US-95, or so indicates my American Express online statement, an Amex card that we had mutually agreed upon would be used for emergencies and one-time indulgences only. But enough about Heather. Sweet, sassy, smug, sordid, sour, something or other Heather. I guess what the whole situation reminds me of is that on this day, the equinox of this latter half of 2015, autumn has officially arrived to whisk away our warm weather, our green leaves, our t-shirts, and our swim trunks in preparation for another shadowy, bleak, lonely winter. I do love the outdoors, but nature can be a foul mistress. I once had a friend named Frad. People used to always call him Fred by mistake when they first met him. Nice to meet you, Fred, they'd say right to Frad's face. I guess they couldn't believe his name was actually Frad. They probably assumed that he'd accidentally mispronounced his own name upon introducing himself. Well, I'll tell you, he hadn't accidentally mispronounced his own name upon introducing himself. He was Frad. I can assure you of that. Anyway, Frad once told me that some of the tough love that we're handed in life is really a blessing incognito. He told me that. Granted, he told me this after finding out that his mother's passing had landed him in the big time financially, but the basic concept, I feel, holds water for the more general events a person may experience in his or her life. Silver linings always border the darkest clouds, stuff like that. I mean, oh my, what was my point with that? I feel like I'm starting back in on the Heather business. I guess, I mean, I guess I'm just wondering what kind of blessing is costumed in the departing of my wife of 15 years, and why would this blessing choose this particular disguise? Could it be likened to the disguise of finality that winter wears, as its cool, colorful forebearer entices us with warm hues and flavors of pumpkin and apple spices distracting us from the fading warmth and comfort of summer? Does winter in its sneaking vacuum dare to actually roll credits when it's over? Does it not, without exception, always and unfailingly break open to the fertile passageway of spring? I think this might be what Frad had been talking about. Hard times, heartbreak, dark nights of the soul, whatever vernacular you'd like. Isn't it all part of a benign, unending circle? Maybe Heather's gone. Maybe Summer's gone. Maybe so. But maybe sulking around and festering in the changes I can't undo, maybe that's a misery of my own making. I ever think of that? Maybe I've got some preventative checking of myself to do to assure that I don't unintentionally wreck myself at some point in the near future. I mean... Does the grass complain when you mow it? Does a lake shriek in pain when it freezes? Does a tree weep when you cut it down? Or does it, uncomplainingly, take its ride to the paper mill so that Ralph Waldo Emerson can write the words that will inspire a generation to live off the land? Look, I guess the point of this whole sordid letter is that nature is unstoppable, irreversible. The summer of 2015 is finished and it's never coming back. The same may just be true of Heather. The message of winter, at least this winter, at least for me, is simply acceptance. I suppose that's all for now. I do hope I'll be more cheerful and back in full backpacking mode for you all next time with some hard-earned tips on adventuring the natural world. For now, I'm going to settle in with my nice little television, Heather's brother came yesterday and took the big one, and get on with accepting my solitude. I suppose that this winter is going to be a cold one, but Lord knows I've got my layers. Warm regards, Eugene. Portland, Maine.
forth the jester. Where is my jester? Here I am, your majesty, Jester Ben. I live to serve your highness. Entertain me, jester. But none of that highfalutin poetry stuff, and no more flood words. They make my head hurt. You know what I like. I do indeed, your majesty. Well, get on with it. Absolutely, your highness. Poetry for the king. Nature. Nature is really great. None of you people should wait. So get outdoors now and unfurrow that brow before you end up like Sharon Tate. Gee willikers, Jason. This multiverse travel stuff is kind of overwhelming. I didn't like that last Earth we visited at all. I sure hope this one is better. Well, it's always a gamble when you- Jason, look out! <whistles> Whoop! I gotcha! Woo! Jeez, Jason. That baby just fell out of the window out of nowhere and you, you caught it with your bare hands. Are the two of you okay? Let's take a look. Hmm. The little guy seems to be just fine. Well, little buddy, I trust you can find your way back up to your apartment on the sixth floor from here. Off you go. Bye, baby. I can't believe you caught him, Jason. Good thing I took a fistful of uppers on the trans-universal jump over here. My reflexes might not have been so quick. Good thing. Oh, look. There baby is. Back at his window. Looks like he wanted to wave thanks. Bye. Bye, baby. Oh, no. No, baby. Baby, not so close to the edge. No! I got him! That is incredible. You know, it reminds me of this YouTube video I watched recently. It was called, like, 10 Craziest Coincidences in History. And one of them was about this baby that fell from a window. And a guy caught the baby, neither of them suffering any sort of injury. And then a year later, the baby falls a second time. Same guy happens to be walking under the window and catches the same baby again, and again, they're both uninjured. Off you go, son, and make sure to stay clear of those six-story window ledges now. Hmm. Interesting. What is it, Jason? Oh, it's nothing. It's just, you say the baby fell a second time and was caught by the same man on your Earth? That's right. Well... In the infinitude of the multiverse, any and every possibility is realized on at least one Earth. So if the baby fell from the window and was caught twice by the same man on your Earth, on another Earth out there somewhere, a baby will fall three times and be caught by the same man. On another, a baby will fall four times, and so on and so on, until on one very unique Earth, that baby will spend its entire life doing nothing but falling from the same window over and over again, being caught by the same man each and every time. Interestingly enough, with an infinity of possible Earths, on another Earth a baby would fall from a window an inconceivable number of times and be saved over and over again by the same woman instead of the same man. 
actually being a true infinity, there must be an earth for every single person who has ever lived on which all they ever accomplish in life is catching the same falling baby falling from the same window over and over. And then there'd be another earth on which each and every person grows up being that falling baby. So on one earth, Richard Nixon spent his life saving the same falling baby from death. On another, Richard Nixon, as a baby, was repeatedly saved by the same person as he fell over and over again from the same window. And there would be an infinity within another infinite number of Earths where Richard Nixon saved every single other baby that could possibly fall from a window and then vice versa. Nixon saves baby Tom Selleck. Selleck saves baby Nixon. Nixon saves baby Larry Bird. Larry saves baby Nixon. Nixon saves baby Gwen Stefani. Gwen Stefani saves baby Nixon. Actually, Nixon would save baby every judge from The Voice, and every judge from The Voice would save a version of baby Nixon. Come to think of it, on another Earth, you, Casey, would have repeatedly saved baby me, old friend, and I would have repeatedly saved baby you. Aw. I, I don't think I would have bothered to repeatedly save baby Nixon, though. Well, I mean, maybe if he was a baby. You would have had to, chum. You would have had to. Anyway, if my calculations are correct, on this Earth, that baby will fall from the same sixth floor window at least once more. Here he comes. Focus, Jason, and... Gotcha again, little pal. Off you go. So on this Earth, you save that baby three times. On another Earth, a version of you saves that baby four times, and on another Earth, a version of you saves that baby five times. And then, say, on another version of the Earth... Hold up. Jason? You're Jason, right? You're me, a multiverse traveler from another reality? That sounds about right. Nice to meet you, Jason, of this Earth. Hey, nice to meet you, brother. You saved my bacon there. I'm sorry I'm running late. How many times did you need to catch the baby? He just caught him three times. No big. I'm guessing you've had to catch this baby before? That's right. A couple dozen times every day for the last, uh, 15 years, I guess. So on this Earth, this version of Jason saves that baby... Every day from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. like clockwork. And so on another version of Earth, Jason would save that baby every day from 7.59 a.m. until 5 p.m. And another slightly different version of Earth from 7.58 until 5 p.m. And then a third version of Earth that would be just slightly different from the first two versions of that Earth where it starts around 8 a.m. This version, it might start at 7.57 a.m. and go until maybe like even 5.05 p.m. Look out! I got it! Oh, sorry, your world, your baby to catch. Thanks for the backup. And back upstairs for you, baby. No worries. Tell me something, Jason, of this Earth. What's that strange slide whistle sound every time the baby falls? Is it some sort of warning device, an alarm you've rigged to let you know the baby is about to fall? Oh, that? No, that's just what falling sounds like on this earth. So it sounds like a bad old radio play? I don't know what that is. We don't have old-timey radio on this earth or slide whistles. Whatever those are or whatever they sound like. Man, Jason, you know what I just realized? On some earth, the version of me saves falling baby Hitler's life every single day. Sure, but on another infinite number of Earths, you, your family, your friends, and everyone you'll ever know at some point walks past a window where a baby Hitler begins to fall, and you and me and everyone else does nothing to save him. Whoop, looks like he's heading for the window again. 
Don't you two worry. I'm sure you have somewhere to be, like finding where that diary some Adam Drent of some universe wrote belongs. Rest assured, we've already got our Adam Drent diary, so it's definitely not from this reality. But thanks for the extra set of hands, and for the infinitude of extra sets of hands other versions of you have lent other versions of me across the multiverse when those other versions of me also passed out from one too many fists full of downers the night before they were supposed to save a baby who repeatedly falls from a six-story window all day every day. Later, Jason. TTFN. Did he catch it? Huh? Oh, uh, didn't look. I'm trying to find the portal hopper keys. Um, ah, there we are. And... Anyway, uh, when you think about it, everyone ever on some earth, somewhere in the multiverse at least, gets a chance to have a hand in Hitler's death by just choosing to do nothing, right Jason? Not only that, but somewhere on certain earths, you or I or anyone might end up deciding to be more hands-on when they see a falling baby Hitler. Oh, sure. So, like, on one earth, um, Reese Witherspoon might be walking down the street, and here comes baby Hitler tumbling through the sky, la la la, and midair, Reese Witherspoon might decide to punch it right in its stupid baby Hitler face. Right. Or Emma Stone might be driving along and she's too late. She sees baby Hitler hit the pavement, and she can see baby Hitler has somehow survived, so she revs her engine and drives over baby Hitler's head. Or, what's her name? She was in Sin City. And Idle Hands? Um, Jessica Alba? Yeah, yeah, Jessica Alba might be walking along, down comes baby Hitler. Wham! Somehow baby Hitler survives. Or, no, it doesn't matter. He's dead. Or maybe not. Either way, Jessica Alba, or, wait, Jessica Biel? Maybe I was thinking of Jessica Biel. Whatever, they're together, both Jessicas. And together, no, scratch that, it's Kate Moss and Kate Upton and uh, Katie Holmes, and together they decide to pick up some loose bricks one of them finds in the gutter or whatever. And then together, the three of them, they're just like, smash, 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 smash. Or maybe it's the three Kates and it's like a skeet shooting situation. Yep. Somewhere out there, that happens. Yep. Is it weird that, like, I'm thinking talking about these celebrities killing baby Hitler is, like, maybe my new thing? I mean, when this is all over and we're back on our respective Earths, I might try to write some fanfic, publish it on the web somewhere. Baby Hitler might be going too far for some people. But the Kates could skeet shoot adult Hitler, just shoot him out of a cannon or something, and then the Kates take aim, pow, splat! Other people online would dig that, maybe, right? Like, it's kinda hot, I think, right? Hey, in an infinite multiverse, anything is possible. As a writer, you just gotta find your audience. Yeah, yeah. Alright, tell me if you've heard this one. What's the difference between a bag of cocaine and a baby? Too soon, my friend. Too soon. Kill baby Hitler. 
next time on Jason and Casey Traverse the Multiverse. Oh, now we're cooking! So if you say pajamas and I say pajamas, I'll wear pajamas and give up pajamas. This month, Gentleman's Mills is as excited about celebrating the one-year anniversary of Out of All Doors as you are. Get ready for a bunch of great deals on items and services that have to do with one-year anniversaries, as well as some of our classic items, some of our best sellers, and a few items from our exclusive Gentleman's Select product line. Number one, Gentleman's Mills' one-year supply of calendar. Number two, his bark is bigger than his plight. This enormous piece of bark is of museum quality and covers an entire gentleman's garden. Number three, Gentleman's Mills Out of All Doors one-year anniversary theoretical swing set of the future. This blueprint of a swing set is a fine example of the kind of swing set man may one day build if we put aside our petty differences and unite to make a swing set. Number four, rumpled stilt skin. These wrinkly old animal hide sleeves protect your precious stilts from dust and scratches. Number five, Gentleman's Mills Big Book of Sermon Topics. The name of this product is misleading, but we won't tell you how. Order to find out. Number six, Gimme Platter. This platter of treats rewards rudeness, not mannerly behavior like our competitors. Number seven, the only winter hat. Don't get caught without a winter hat this winter. Order the only one in existence from Gentleman's Mills before someone else gets it. Number eight, milk made. Look, customers, look at what the milk made. Number nine, the anniversary promise ring. Download this mobile app which rings a saintly bell whenever your phone mic recognizes the word promise. On the one-year anniversary of the promise, a sketch drawn by Gentleman's Mills co-founder the dandy of you breaking the promise is texted to all your contacts. Number 10, gel hair. Apply this hair to your gel to give your gel a scruffy, fuzzy appearance. Number 11, quack dappers. These diapers are big enough to fit the quack doctors in your professional or family circles. Number 12, mini fridge. Fridge is short for refrigerator. Mini is short for minivan. Number 13, big grabs. When you got a lot to grab. Number 14, full boys yogurt. He wants to eat it, but he doesn't. Am I right? But sure enough, he does. Number 15, ignorance is blistering. No matter the truth, this stove always says it's off once installed. Number 16, pistol and stamen. This product appears just as we drew it in the second grade. Number 17, action cars. These cars do it all. Full set comes with a mountain repelling race car, slalom skiing speedster, motorcycle riding truck, volleyball go-kart, euchre playing supercharger, and harp strumming big rig. Number 18, Absolute Silence. Find perfect solitude and tranquility with this box filled with calming silence. But first, 
You have to get through four layers of crinkly plastic wrap that'll have your ears ringing. Also, opening the box sets off a single-use firecracker. Pow! But then it's perfect silence except for the minute-by-minute alarm that lets you know it's working. Number 19, Total Recall Anniversary Edition. The box of Total Recall with a big numeral one drawn on it in permanent marker. Number 20, marble or grape. Using neither your senses of touch, smell, hearing, sight, or taste, tell us, is this a marble or a grape? Number 21, waistcoat trimmer. Let me ask of you this, what man of the evening needs suffer from unsightly waistcoat puff? Why, he should be the jesting stock of the entire matriculating class. Help keep thine own waistcoat in properest trim with this fine, fine implementule. Number 22, Posh Ponies. You'll never want a pony again after you deal with these high-maintenance ponies. Time to brush that mane again. And number 23, the first annual yearly anniversary award symposium, celebrating the passing of a single year. Listeners, hello, and welcome to another splendiferous edition of Nature's Serenade. I am your most humble host, Gregory Hugavine, or G-Honey for short. Today is a new day, friends. Today is now. Today is here. We must embrace it because today, anything is possible. Today, anything can and will happen. Today can be the status quo or today can be a whole new beginning. I am going to choose the latter. Today, I will be the change. And with that said, I need to start today's episode by apologizing for an episode that aired, oh, about a month ago. I lost my temper and some things were said, some words I would love to take back. I I need to handle constructive criticism better. So forgiveness has been on G. Honey's mind lately, and I will tell you faithful and wonderful listeners why. About a week ago, I went for a hike and found this beautiful meadow. I decided it would make a great place for some meditation. I sat myself down and began my breathing. Breathing, dear friends, is very important. Anyway, I had been inhaling and exhaling the glorious meadow air for about 15 minutes or so when I was interrupted by a sharp pain on my neck and then another sharp pain on my earlobe and then on my nose. Wasps! Everywhere! There were at least five of them and they were stinging me for no good reason. No good reason at all. I had to run. Run like the wind. I ran like I had never run before. I ran like a cholerphobic, escaping murderous clowns. I sprinted for about a mile, when suddenly I I blacked out. It turns out, faithful listeners, that I, Gregory Hugavine, 
am allergic to wasps. In fact, (laughs) I am very allergic to them. Thankfully, some other hikers who were in the area found me and got me to a hospital in time. I am happy to say that I am alive and well. I was in the hospital for about three days, and that gave me quite a bit of time to think. At first, I was furious. How dare those wasps interrupt my meditating? How could they do that to a pacifist such as myself? However, after quite a bit of thought, I realized they were just protecting their nests, protecting their homes. They didn't know me personally, just as I didn't know them insectally. To them, I was a giant invader who wanted to kill their families, destroy their nests. So of course they stunned me. I guess I don't blame them. So today, on the show, I would like to tell the five wasps who stung me 23 times that I forgive you. And I don't expect a return apology of any kind. Although, (laughs) it would be nice. I really don't know how I'm going to pay for the medical bill. (laughs) But that's beside the point. So, I tell that story to say, yes, forgiveness is difficult. It can be very hard. But in the end, I think it's better that we forgive than to harbor a grudge and become so bitter, so jaded, so acrimonious that we begin to hate ourselves and hate our lives. So, dear listeners, I invite each one of you to forgive me for last month's episode. You will, I promise, feel better in doing so. So, since this is a show about folk music, I will play you a new song that I just wrote called Forgiveness Sting. Dwayne, look, look, lady, I don't know who we were talking about. I, I was just trying to record a song when you so rudely interrupted. Cut the podcast crap, Dwayne. It's time your four or five listeners realized who you really are. A loser who lives in his sister's basement who can't keep a job for more than two weeks. Audrey, stop. No, Dwayne, I'm going to stop. Not until you stop being the town's biggest embarrassment. You're pathetic. And I'm tired of trying to explain to everyone why you are such a gigantic failure. I said stop. I am not a failure. Failure. Moron. Loser. You shut up. Loser. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. You are a loser, Dwayne. And I will make this stop. Hey, hey. Let let go of that. Audrey, what are you crazy? 
How, how could you? How, you? You broke my guitar. I'll never forgive you for this. Never. Hello, my name is Daniel McLeod, and Adam was kind enough to invite me onto this podcast to tell you the story of my favorite camping trip that I took with my father. I was 14 when my dad opened my bedroom door and announced that we were going camping. This was a surprise, as it was 5 in the morning and a school day, and my father had never shown any interest in the outdoors. I had never spent a night outside in my life. Plus, it was two days before his custody weekend. Camping? Like a tent in the woods? I asked. Yes, of course, he said. What else did you think I meant? Do we even have a tent? Did Mom say I could miss school? Don't get bogged down in details, Danny, he said. We're going camping. It was an hour's drive to a sporting goods and camping store to buy a tent, sleeping bags, and other supplies that my father had rambled about during the drive. There was mention of a thermos, and also some canned stew. The stew did a lot to dampen my initial excitement at the prospect of missing school. Arriving at the store, my father realized what had seemed obvious to me, though I'd been afraid to point it out. The store would not be open for quite some time. Instead, we drove until we found a diner open for breakfast. I ordered pancakes, while my father continued to obsess about the supplies he intended to purchase. His list seemed somehow exhaustive and incomplete. He seemed fixated on fishing gear, despite no prior inclination to the pastime. The more he talked, the more it became clear to me that he had not planned this trip for more than 20 minutes. Convinced I might be eating my last meal, I waited until he went to the bathroom, then ordered a second helping of pancakes. When the sporting goods store finally opened, my dad buzzed around, hitting as many departments as possible. I looked at baseball gloves. When he tracked me down, he had two carts full of items, representing overkill in some areas. The sleeping bags, for example, were rated for high-altitude climbing, while the forecasted low for that night was 72 degrees, and yet woefully underprepared in others. He had no bottled water, bug spray, or a flashlight. When I tried to point this out, he accused me of, quote, trying to ruin this too, in a tone of voice that scared me into silence. The sleepy clerk rang the items up, trying and failing to mask his incredulity. So, you guys going camping? he asked. Yes, of course we are, Dad snapped at him, completely whiffing on the friendly sarcasm. Thanks to that, I'll never know if the clerk was ever going to try to talk Dad out of his ridiculous cart or into more appropriate purchases. Instead, he dutifully rang them up, hundreds and hundreds of dollars worth of gear, it was up to me to load it all into the truck, and once that was done, I climbed into the cab to see my father consulting a road map. So, where are we camping? I asked. I don't know yet, he said. At this point, I still hadn't questioned much. My father was known to fly off into any number of odd moods, schemes, or situations. Why not the game preserve? I asked. No, that's too obvious and not far enough away, he said. Why does it matter if it's obvious? I asked. Stop asking questions. Despite the pancakes, I was already hungry, a depressing thought as I'd seen the amount of stew Dad had piled into the cart. Well, let's just start driving, he said, and eventually I guess we'll find somewhere that works. And so we drove, and after a bit, I fell asleep, enjoying the warm sun shining through the passenger window. 
The first police siren woke me up about an hour later. Oh, come on already, I heard my dad say. What's happening, I managed, trying for the second time that morning to shake the effects of slumber. I looked at the passenger side mirror to see a cruiser behind us, lights on. There's no way, not yet. I must be for something else. Maybe some of our gear fell out? I asked, aiming for a tone of benign helpfulness. Yeah, maybe, he said. He still had not slowed the truck, and indeed, from his facial expressions, it seemed as though his head housed a war of conflicting desires. Again, not unusual for my father. Shouldn't we pull over? I asked. He didn't acknowledge that for a moment, but then he nodded, a nearly imperceptible flick of his chin, and began to slow the pickup. A minute or so later, a large police officer sidled up to the truck. My father had rolled down his window in anticipation. You guys going camping? The officer asked. For the second time that morning, my dad missed the sarcasm. Yes, we are, he replied. Quite a lot of stuff back there, the officer said. To me, he seemed more congenial than could have been hoped for. Where are you guys headed to camp? No, oh, just up to Highland State Park, my father said. Apparently, he'd come to that conclusion while I'd been asleep. Oh, it's beautiful up there, just beautiful. My wife's family acted as a lake cottage up in that area. We visit a few weeks every summer. That sounds nice, my father said. Can I ask, why did you stop us? Well, to be honest, your load didn't look too secure. I wanted to make sure nothing was going to fly out and go through somebody's windshield back there. Well, I hardly think that's likely, my father said, but I appreciate the courtesy. And now if... No, no, not a problem at all, Cop continued, apparently oblivious to what my dad had been about to say. Beautiful day for camping, too. You picked a great time of year. Always love camping in September. Not too hot, not too cold. And, of course, if you'd waited a few weeks, the leaves would have turned a bit. Movement in the side mirror distracted me from the officer's tangent, and as I looked, I was surprised to see that more police cars had pulled in behind the first, and more policemen were approaching on both sides. I looked at my father, who was staring straight ahead with his trademark look of clenched jaw indifference. I'd seen it often, whenever he was attempting to convey his feeling that whatever conversation he was being forced to endure was a waste of his apparently precious time. In this case, it meant he hadn't even glanced in the mirror. It's Mr. McLeod, right? The officer asked, his congeniality disappearing instantly. My father nodded again, refusing to meet the officer's eyes. If you'll step out of the car then, sir? I was still quite confused, and expected my father to explode with disagreement. Instead, he unbuckled the seatbelt and opened the door. I can't believe she really did it, he muttered, right before the officer bent him over the hood, applied handcuffs, and announced his arrest for kidnapping. I never had to visit him on weekends again, and I got to ride home in the front seat of the police cruiser. That was the best and only camping trip of my life. Cousin Ben, back again to... Okay, alright, look, this is just ridiculous. Seriously? Seriously? You object to pure inspiration from nature that you claim your podcast is about, but but you can't even. I mean, flood, fl- flood water, and but no, but fine, whatever, whatever. I mean, look, fine, no flood stuff, but that even that wasn't even what those last poems were about. I mean, all right, the one was, but what, whatever. Look, really, I mean, one guy. One guy who gets to decide what the entirety of the internet wants to hear. And like, what is he? The flood police? The poetry police? The the flood poem KGB? Fine. Whatever. Okay. No big deal. We're good. He can have what he wants because let's face it, he has the keys to the podcast. And I bet he ran that stupid forum website scene thing the, the, the same tyrannical way. 
Fine. Here's a poem. <sighs> Sun and grass. Moon of glass. Pretty, pretty sky. Pretty, pretty fly. Nature is really nice. Free of sin and vice. But you might have to check for lice. And be careful not to slip on ice. Nature gives us beans and rice. And since you asked, I will say it twice. I think nature is really nice. How's that, Adam? Close your eyes, but not both at the same time, that's too sudden. Close the left eye, pause, now close the right eye. Now lie down and get comfortable. Being comfortable is crucial because if you're not comfortable, you're going to visualize everything all wrong. It'll be a total disaster. I wish I could visit each of you individually and force you to get comfortable, but I can't. It just isn't feasible, so I just have to hope. I have to hope. You find yourself in a golden wheat field at dusk, the setting sun making everything you see seem to glow from within. The sky is more colors than you're willing to name. The clouds look like something someone with a cute form of insanity would paint for you for free because he doesn't grasp the value of money. The breeze smells like summer and fall are having a dance-off, and it's too early to declare a winner based solely on performance, but pretty much everyone has their money on fall because it's late September. You turn in a circle, a full 360 degrees, and you look at all the golden wheat, and just for a moment, for the first time in your life, you see how wheat could become bread. You get it. But then the moment passes and you're back to not getting it at all. It just seems impossible that wheat could ever become bread. They just seem far, far too different. You begin to walk through the wheat, letting your fingers brush against the wheat tops. You know your hands will smell like wheat when you get home, but you don't care. You'd rather they smell like wheat than what they usually smell like, human skin. Where are you going? Where are you headed? Do you have a destination in mind? Yes, you do. It's that fence over there. You want to climb over it and then follow that gravel road for a while. Maybe gather a little gravel for yourself. Maybe see if you can figure out what's under the gravel. Well, okay, sure, I guess that's fine. Let's go for it. You keep walking toward the fence. But before you get too far, hey, look over there in that direction. See that wooded hill rising out of the wheat? See how the green leaves are turning bright yellow along their edges? See how the sunbeams illuminate the hill as if by design? See how the wooded hill is an almost geometrically perfect dome? Perhaps you'd like to go over there. Maybe you'd like to see what's at the top of that hill, hidden beneath that beautiful canopy. Maybe waiting especially for you? You turn to glance at the beautiful hill, then you keep heading toward the fence and the gravel road. It's a perplexing decision, but one you're certainly allowed to make. You keep trailing your fingers over those wheat heads like some kind of compulsion, covering your hands in wheat stench. The fence draws ever closer. But you're still not very far from that wooded hill I mentioned earlier, the one with all the mysterious, alluring qualities, the one that almost certainly hides a lovely secret meant for your eyes and your eyes alone. It would take almost no time at all to turn around and walk over to that hill. In fact, I could make you go faster than a normal walking pace. You could just zip right over there and check it out. You keep stumbling along toward that fence. How do you know you'll even be able to get over that fence? What if it's made of barbed wire and the posts are made of barbed wood? 
Then you'll have to turn around and head for the hill anyway. You won't even be able to get to the gravel road. Listen, I'll just get you some gravel. You look in your pocket and you've got some gravel, see? Okay, you want to know what's under the gravel? It's just dirt. So now there's no need to go over there. You've got some gravel, you know what's under it. Now you can go check out that hill without missing out on anything the gravel road had to offer. And yet, look at you, stubbornly plodding through the wheat toward that dirty, shabby fence. It's pathetic. You know what? I'm not going to let you do this to yourself. The landscape warps around you and you find yourself standing at the base of the lovely wooded hill, a thin trail leading in among the trees and upward toward the top of the hill where you feel something delightful must surely await you. You walk out of the wheat and onto the trail, the stately healthy trees closing in around you as you make your way up the gentle slope. You must be filled with anticipation, you must be brimming with it. All thoughts of fences and gravel and gravel roads flee from your mind as you focus on something that's actually cool for once. You feel the invigoration that comes with getting your priorities in the proper order. The crest of the hill comes closer and closer. And then at last you were there, at the top of the hill, and waiting for you there in the middle of a tiny meadow of many colored flowering plants is a wooden chest. You approach it. You open it. But what's inside? Why, it's a pair of wire cutters, a gravel identification guide, and a gravel specimen jar with a lid of pure plastic. See? See? Now do you see why I wanted you to come here first? You gather all of the items into your arms, and with a whoop of joy, you turn and sprint down the path and out of the woods, charging headlong into the field of wheat, your heart full nearly to bursting with the endless pleasure of doing something the right way. Your feet are flying, the wheat whizzes past, and in no time at all you find yourself at the fence, the wire of which is indeed as barbed as wire comes, but you take your trusty wire cutters in hand, and soon there's a gap in that fence big enough to drive two half-trucks abreast through. You toss the wire cutters aside and sprint to the gravel road, dropping to your knees right in the middle of it, whipping out the gravel identification guide and the gravel specimen jar and immediately going to work identifying and gathering gravel. It's so much more fulfilling this way. So very much more fulfilling this way indeed. Soon your gravel specimen jar is full and you screw its lid of pure plastic back on, holding the jar full of gravel up to admire it before sighing contentedly. You turn to look toward the wooded hill, but... Somehow, it's no longer there. Was it ever there at all? You may never know. Behind you, you hear the gentle honk of a car horn. You hurry off the road and wait to see who or what will come driving around the bend. Well, you're going to love this, because it's a science judge in a golf cart, and he's here to award you a blue ribbon for best gravel collection. Although, unfortunately, you'll have to forfeit your cash prize to cover the cost of fixing the hole in the fence. And now, listener... Leave your ribbon and your gravel behind and come back to the RL made famous by the common internet acronym IRL. But don't leave the peace you experience in that not RL place behind. No, bring that peace with you and keep it in the specimen jar of your heart so you can at all times have the peace of out of all doors with you, even when you're inside of one or more doors. Thank you for listening to the 13th episode of Out of All Doors. I'm Adam Durant, and I would like to thank Matt Martin, Andy Poppenfoos, J.J. Evans, Casey By, Ben Bird, Chris Nichols, Jay Rigdon, and Aaron Eikenberry for their contributions, written, audible, and technical. And thanks to Casey By, J.J. Evans, and Chris Nichols for making all the music used in the show. 
If you'd like to get in touch for any reason, you can send emails to the show at outofalldoors at gmail.com or me personally at adamdren at gmail.com. You can also call or text me at 574-518-1983. I'd love to hear from you. And I'm active on Twitter, too. I'm at HugePop. Here's another thing I'd love. If you went on iTunes and rated this podcast, maybe wrote a review, maybe even subscribed, and be sure to check out my website, HugePop.com, where you can find links to my other projects, including Bedtime Stories, One Man's World, and the music I make is The Mispronouncer. Bedtime Stories and One Man's World are also on iTunes if you search for them under podcasts, and you could rate and review those too. And a Bedtime Stories app is also available for all smart style phones. We'll be back in a month with episode 14 of Out of All Doors.